the only tool missing from your belt. Simpro, total business software for the trades. When you choose Simpro, you get the digital power tools of the trades that make work, work. Founded by trades, for the trades. Simpro is your solution for scheduling, quoting, inventory tracking, and easy workflow management that grows with you. Join more than 200,000 users worldwide who trust Simpro to help them run and grow their business. We're here for you, so let's get to work. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And today we are continuing our conversation with Michael Gibbs, uh, one of the number one influencers in the world of security and a man of many, many talents as we discussed on the last podcast. And if you missed that, please go back and catch the last one because that is where we go through and not only find out about Michael and his background and uh, his forays into the world of security, but also the geopolitical environment and how that's going to look over the last, well, 20 what 12 months and then moving forward into 2024 and the impact that that may have on the uh, the world of security moving forward in this podcast we're going to discuss evolving threat vectors and uh, michael welcome back to the show thanks john great to be back now we discussed in the last one quite a bit about the Ukraine and the Israel wars and the impact that that's having on global security. So one of the emerging or evolving threat vectors that we're going to kick off with today is rampant weaponry. And that's been discussed a little bit in the last one. But for those people who may not have dis- heard that podcast yet, tell me a little bit about why rampant weaponry is an evolving threat vector in 2024. Sure. Um, especially with the war in Ukraine, and Russia and armaments, there, there's so much loose weaponry around Ukraine. Um, uh, you know, police are now routinely, uh, you know, equipped with heavy weaponry. The, um, you know, Russian infiltrators, uh, the their heavy artillery is being captured. Um, you know, drones, etc. So there's all sorts of um, of heavy armaments that are floating around the country and then they make their way through the black market um to you know not just within russia and ukraine but they cross the border and they you know for put to um you know illegally used um for you know, for for weapons trafficking um they contribute to um to the increase in violence and crime throughout the region and you know you're seeing that um, elsewhere, you know, Israel um, and, and elsewhere where more um, more uh, heavy weaponry is coming on the black market and, you know, through through Gaza and, and elsewhere. So it's a it's an offshoot of the um, the large global or regional conflicts we're seeing around. The- yeah. But uh, not something that we really want to see is uh, heavy military-grade weaponry making its way into organised crime groups. Exactly. The, the next one that sort of came up on the list of the the top twenty-three challenges moving forward into twenty twenty-four uh, is artificial intelligence, and the reality is this could be an entire podcast all of its own. Um, but from the perspective of your list and how it's been compiled and talking to security experts around the world, walk us through where we're sort of seeing the the challenges of artificial intelligence in the security space. Absolutely. Now, if, if I were coming into this podcast not knowing anything and you're saying, okay, we're, we're part of the way through and AI is, AI is now coming up, say, whoa, AI should be number one. Yeah. And in a sense, it is. Uh, AI has been around for several years. I mean, really primitive form. It's been around for decades. We're now really coming into, you know, really powerful AI, not ba- not a couple of algorithms, you know, that do very basic tasks, real sophisticated stuff. And really the manifestation of that was when ChatGPT uh, emerged and all of its, you know, the, the, the similar, um, uh, the similar uh, generative AI um uh, tools and all of a sudden i mean it has a profound impact in many ways on the uh, security industry you know positive you know that it helps with 
Um, you know, the, the writing is good, so it helps research, it helps report writing. There's AI now where companies can can look through, you know, footage, um, you know, hundreds or millions of hours of footage to look for certain incidents, look for characteristics, look for trends. Um, police are now harnessing that. Department security departments are harnessing it. You know, you have AI that's now embedded in, um, you know, video analytics and, and other security tools. So there's definitely the good side. Um, being able to identify phishing attacks, cyber side and, and, and malware and things like that. But the G AI generated threats um, are, are a major problem. And as we know, any technology, the, the negative uses always seem to, at least in my view, always seem to just have a little advantage over the positive uses, or at least, you know, when we figure out how to address the negative uses, then, you know, the, uh, the criminals are, are shrewd enough to tweak it a little bit and create a new problem that, that something you haven't addressed. So AI being used to mimic um, people's voices and, and facial characteristics. It used to be that, you know, you might get an email from the boss saying, oh, buy me a hundred Apple gift cards because I have to give it to somebody, you know, those things yeah. that seem like obvious scams, right? And now they get more sophisticated. All of a sudden you get a call on your cell phone and it says, this is from the boss and it sounds like the boss. And he says, um, he uses like terminology that, that he might specifically use. It's unique to him and says, um, Hey, um, you know, buy these cards, Joe. And this is, this is the boss. And it's like, Whoa, this is real. So yeah. it's becoming a lot more sophisticated. The, the, the quality of, um, the, uh, the uh, artificial intelligence just in the past couple of years in deep fakes much better. Like you, a few years ago, you would see like, Oh, this is so obvious. That's not Mark Zuckerberg talking. That's not um, Samuel L. Jackson or whatever. Now, you know, it's, you know, it's not so easy to tell. Yeah, we're, um, we're, we're seeing some fairly disturbing examples of that. I saw one here not long ago where a friend who plays in a band had just, uh, prepared to release a new album and he showed me a whole bunch of apparently there's a website that you can go to I, I won't name it on here because we don't need to perpetuate it but he had used this website to use the image and the voice of the actor Will Smith to create a whole bunch of promotional you know uh, pieces for their band's upcoming album saying you know this band is fantastic you should really listen to them the album's great you know and lots of humorous stuff in there as well and I have to say I was shocked at how realistic it actually looked. And then my second thought was, how long is it going to be until someone starts suing everyone over all this stuff? Because you are essentially using someone's likeness and misrepresenting their thoughts and feelings in a public way. That's a great point. And people are already starting to get back at, at ChatGPT. And there, there's a case where a lawyer um, put his own name to tell me about this lawyer who's a professor at law school. And it said, this lawyer slash law professor teaches this class, in this school, and he was hit with the charges for um, sexual harassment of students when he took a bunch of students, you know, to some foreign city or whatever. Yeah. And, he had never worked in the school. He had never gone to that city, much less taken students. And he certainly hadn't been um, sexually harassing him. So now it's like this chat GPT making this up or what went into the, what went into this algorithm, what went into the AI, right? So now he's trying to figure out who, who to sue. So who is liable for sorts of these sorts of things? The, the people who create the algorithm. Yeah. Um, so a, a friend of mine, a colleague who um, is a chief um, uh at the Network Contagion Research Institute, which looks for disinformation online, was just um, quoted in the media on this trend of uh, people who are um, catfishing, and that's not a, a recent trend, but doing really sophisticated um, catfishing where they, um, you know, pretend to be attractive young women overseas yeah. and then get these 
teenage kids, I think this was in Canada in a specific case, to let's send them compromising photos or they're nude. And then they expose, you know, they they well shouldn't use that word, but they reveal themselves to be, you know, they say, Oh, now that we have your picture, if you don't give us blah, 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 we're gonna send it. We don't know who your friends are, we know your family, we're gonna send your school, we're gonna send it. And some of these kids have committed suicide. So these those have real world impacts. The um and especially, you know, on social media, the kids aren't kids aren't well sophisticated aren't very sophisticated. In a sense they are, but in, you know, in in technology in a sense they are, but in, in the ways of people and 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 uh, experience and you know wanting to be liked and popular, they're they're you know um fish in a barrel, you know, yeah. to to put it bluntly. So you know, the, the AI is taking advantage of um, people who are very vulnerable, as well as people who are very sophisticated. I've, I've you know, I've, I've seen cases where security people were tricked, like with really good phishing attacks that were, you know, they're, they're more targeted. So spear phishing, right, or, or yeah. whaling. And it just had different layers of, of, of um, information, um, multi, uh, uh, sort of multimedia and it looked right and people are hurried and it's like they know the signs to look for, but the signs that weren't as obvious. Yeah. Um, so think, any of us can look for it. I think that's uh that's the two biggest challenges as I see it are really in the cybersecurity space where you know, you will have algorithms that are able to more quickly and rapidly determine vectors and and you know, vulnerabilities within software. But also, and we've all watched Black Mirror, I'm sure everyone knows about the show, but it's we're getting to that point now where it seems like it's getting harder and harder and harder to believe anything that we're seeing online. And, you know, the, the, the idea that Donald Trump sort of pioneered back in 2016 of fake news, fake news, it's, it's actually becoming harder and harder, genuinely is becoming harder and harder to tell what is real and what is fake news these days. And I fear that there is going to be a point where we literally can't trust anything that we see online. You, um, you speak the truth. I, I was telling you about this um, Network Contagion Research Institute, and I'm, I'm one of their advisors um, for full transparency, but there is even a debate there. It's like, what do you call misinformation and disinformation? Because they're becoming politically loaded terms. You know, one person's, you know, uh, disinformation, misinformation is another person's, you know, political spin, right? Or it's like, um, so now you almost target, you, you almost um, telegraph your politics on, in the way you, you know, by the way you depict something. So, yes, it is getting increasingly um, difficult to tell what's real. Do we even agree as a, you know, as, as a, community as a world on credible sources i mean maybe there are in the united states there are, you know there's people who fox news on one hand and then um see it um msnbc on the other hand you know depending on what side of the spectrum you're on it's like well what's in the middle you know there's there are not very many trusted resources and it's it's not only that it's not only just divide, divided by politics um by the political spectrums divided by niche issues like you know um you know the new york times you know could be considered a very left-wing publication but if you hear and we were talking about israel hamas war before if you talk to you know supporters of israel they think the new york times is, is grotesquely anti-israel and pro-palestine and then the other hand you know you have you know people saying the opposite you know so it's um to even trust the New York Times anymore. There's people who that used to be the paper of record for, you know, for the United States, right? Now it's like I know a lot of people who won't even read it. Um, so the reading niche publications, they're very few. Maybe the Wall Street Journal, you know, that that are kind of down the middle and that that people kind of accept, but it almost, you know, you can't even write a, a, a document anymore and quote these things and have everyone agree on the legitimacy of your sources. So now we're all in our echo chambers. We're looking at niche information sources, things that support our point of view. And that's not good for anybody. That's yeah. not good for education. That's not good for dialogue. That's not good for, um, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, making, making friends, making peace with our, our colleagues and neighbors. 
Well, it's not great for public discourse and sentiment, which brings us to our next one. And I'd never heard about this before, but one of the factors that came up in Evolving Threats was sentiment control. Perhaps you can explain to the listeners who are enjoying this, you know, what is sentiment control? Because from my point of view, this is a first for me. Yeah, this is a, a term that I'm not sure if I've heard it put exactly that way, but my colleague, friend and colleague Rick Mountfield uh, in the UK put it that way. Um, I don't know that's that's um, specific to him, but he used that terminology. And that's really um, kind of um, how social media memes, um, uh, posts, um, trends, um, manipulate how people feel about certain things about certain about about um their neighbors about society about about government about corporations um and you know in 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 the case of corporations there's all sorts of you know competitive and 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 um uh um attacks going on fair and unfair and things being blown out of proportion and trying to manipulate people's feelings on on um, on different topics, and I talked about, you know, the the Chinese drones and, and earlier. Um, there, I had until a few years ago, I didn't realize how how meme warfare was so powerful. So memes, you know, those little pictures or cartoons that yep. convey a, a really powerful message through mostly imagery, but also you know, usually some often some text. And it's their simplicity and their power that makes them so um, uh, so uh, have, have such great effect. And they're usually kind of snide or they're humorous, um, and they kind of create the feeling like if if you're if you don't buy into this, you know, you don't know what's going on. You're not a part of the in thing. Um, and so you see. Um, you know, for example, there was a, a, a meme a couple of years ago that targeted Coca-Cola and it said, Coke wants you to be less, act less white and quote unquote, less white, like being a white person. And, you know, yeah. we're in a time where diversity, equity, inclusion, racial um, understanding, you know, you know, trying to be um, inclusive, and fair and everything and, and respectful of different cultures. And then there's like, you know, with diversity, inclusion, there's a, there's a pushback. People say, well, it's gone too far. Now, you know, other people, it's like, you know, now, you know, whites or white males or whatever are, 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 are feeling the pain or whatever. I'm not weighing in on that, but, um, you know, this meme came out and said, Coke wants you to be less white. And it's like, Oh my God, you have to, now you should be ashamed of being white. What does it mean? And so people are going after Coca-Cola saying, so we should be not proud of we should be ashamed. We should have white guilt or whatever it is. And really, someone had plucked it out of a um, one Coke office, I believe, had a training program. And it did say something like in their slide deck, it said, try to be less white. Yeah. It was for, you know, maybe trying to maybe to explain how to be cross cultural or not to, um, or to understand sort of the privileges you've got. I, I don't really remember yeah. the context of it, but it wasn't as broad. It was very specific to one office, one PowerPoint, and I'm not commenting on whether it's a positive or negative thing, but it got, whoa, it got blown out. All of a sudden, Coke is done. Oh, should we shame ourselves for being white? That sort of thing. Yeah. That can be, and I'm not saying it was weaponized. It might have been. It may not, but there's plenty of things that are being wep- weaponized, and they're not just going after corporations. You know, China... Russia, North Korea, Iran, other places are doing it to undermine, you know, the Australian government, um, U.S., and the foundations, you know, our, our democracies, our system of, um, uh, you know, of constitutional monarchy or whatever it may be, uh, wherever you are, a free press, freedom of religion. Um, they are some of the prime instigators in uh, propagating, you know, Israel against, I mean, like they need more instigation, but, yeah. you know, anti-Semitism, you know, anti-Muslim feelings, like that stuff is coming from China. You know, a lot of it is to 
set people against each other. I mean, obviously yeah. there's a lot of it otherwise, but it is playing with people's emotions. It's controlling people. Um, and especially young adults are extremely um, susceptible to this. As a matter of fact, my I have two daughters and my younger one, which is in high school, I used to hear her say that she was embarrassed that I was pro-police. Now, I'm not pro-police, you know, for, for everything. I don't think, you know, I don't believe in abuse, obviously, or, or yeah. you know, or, um, you know, unconstitutional use of police powers. But generally, I think, you know, having police forces is, is uh, positive for a functional yeah. society. And she was telling me that, well, you know, the police system is racist, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, you know, I can understand that point of view, but where are you getting this from? And she said, well, TikTok. I was right. like, oh, my gosh. You know, so, and who's feeding that on TikTok? Now, I said to her, if you conclude that after doing legitimate research, talking to people, understanding what's going on, looking at, you know, history, you know, um, and really, you know, independently, reviewing it for yourself, not TikTok or people who are forcing you to say that, then I'll respect, I'll respect that. If you come up to your own opinion, that's all I can ask, you know, but just be you know rigorous about it. So my point is not everyone's going to be that rigorous, right? Yeah. I mean, they're being fed this kind of stuff and, you know, the anti-police, you know, or yeah. some people call it, right. Um, but being fed other things too, they're also being fed anti-woke stuff, right? They're being fed to call anything that they don't like that seems liberal to them, you know, woke. So it's being weaponized both ways. Yeah. Well, there's a, a, a new trend apparently that I was made aware of the other day, a, a program called reclip it. I don't know if you've come across this where it's an app that apparently I haven't seen it myself. Apparently you can download it to your phone. And if someone is saying something you don't like, you record it on your phone and then you can just reclip the last 30 seconds of it and immediately have that out on social media and it's completely out of context. It completely misrepresents what that person's thoughts oh. or sentiments might have been, but it's a way of almost just, you know, sending a nuclear detonation in. You will literally blow this person's life up as a way of getting back at them by saying something that you didn't agree with. I laugh not out of humour, but out of sort of resignation or acknowledgement of course people are going to come up with something you know that yeah will even skew people you know will will misrepresent people's true feelings even more right because that's that's what we need well the reality um, is unfortunately the media have been doing this for years though i mean i remember yeah. being i remember being present at a, a protest in melbourne back in 2002 i think it was around the world economic forum where protesters had been, believe it or not, throwing condoms full of petrol at police horses and then flicking matches at them. And out of oh. sheer despair and danger, one of the police officers, at, mounted police officers at the time, pulled out his baton and tried to clear the crowd away and get them back from his horse by giving it a few swings. Now, there's no prizes for guessing which portion of that the media chose yeah. to play on the evening news. Yep. And yep. it wasn't the part where they were flicking matches at the police horse covered in petrol. Yep. Yeah. Um, no, you're right about that. The difference in social media is it's organic um, and it's sort of self-propagating and it's, it's global, right? With some of these, um, these news things, you're right. I mean, media manipulate things. I'm not trying to, uh, to cover it up. You like to think that most media are honest. I'd like to think that. Is that accurate? I don't know. I, I, I hope it is. I've seen a lot of evidence to the contrary. But yes, you know, the media is known to say, oh, yeah, there's um, a huge demonstration here and it's going to take down this government. It's 12 people and they make it, you know, the camera angle makes it look like they're overthrowing the government or whatever. When yeah. It's just people that round it up, you know, and say, hey, just, you know, post, pull down the statue and we'll, you know, it'll look like, you know, this, uh, this government is, is, is going under. Maybe we can get people to actually follow through. So, yeah, um, yeah, for sure. 
Now, some of the other ones on here, I mean, you, you on this list, we also had, as far as evolving threat vectors were concerned, insider threats, um, cyber threats. Of course, we, we won't spend a huge amount of time. In fact, we can probably brush over those because I think insider threat and cyber threat are probably things that have been discussed to death in security circles over the last couple of years. Um, but then we had natural disasters, and that's an interesting one because this sort of, again speaks to the last point we were talking about with sentiment control and all the rest of it and arguments over whether or not climate change is real, regardless of what you believe, whether you believe that climate change is real or it isn't. I think we're starting to see a lot more natural incidents occurring and that's creating some significant security challenges globally for manufacturing, supply chain, staff, all sorts of things. So talk me through that a little bit. Sure. Just, um, you know, with insider threat and cyber they're on there. They're, they're they're certainly not trends in that they're new, but they're the nuances, the evolution. Um, you know how uh, attackers are uh, uh, taking new approaches. That's developing, and you're right. We don't have to go into it, but it would have seemed um, negligent not to include the latest developments because it's so important. But with natural disasters, natural disasters is in the same bucket because it's no mystery that um, natural disasters have been on the increase. And it's not just because and you're, you're right about talking about climate change and people who don't believe in climate change, but I mean, you, you look from the data um, that there are more disasters and they're more destructive. And, and maybe part of it's because um, there's more um, population in these areas where they might not have been like, you know, in past decades or whatever, causing um, deaths and injuries and displacements and things like that. Um, but certainly over the past few years um, with the, um, you know, with climate change, I mean, the climate is increasing, whether it's man-made or not, I guess is, is, is the argument, but it's certainly, you know, since records were kept, the, um, the, the, average temperature of earth has gone up um i think it's like 1.7 degrees celsius or something like that and a lot of people might say well that could just be um natural fluctuation the earth is you know billions of years old we talk about geological eras tens of thousands of years so the, who could say that the, since 1950 you know when we're talking you know millions billions of years that that we could really have that kind of effect. Mankind could really have an effect on something that's so old and powerful, right? So um, that's the argument there. But what we have seen is, yes, you know, part because of um, migration patterns, um, you know, repopulation, um, people, you know, moving up closer to, um, you know, uh, um, uh, fault lines, to the coast where there, there, there might be tsunamis. So we saw just last year, it was the hottest year on record. Of course, we don't be keeping records for, you know, maybe 100, 150 years or something like that. Yeah. Um, twinkle of the eye in, in the in the history of the earth, but, you know, for, for us, you know, significant. Um, you had 55,000 people killed in earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Um, you had the storm in, in Libya, um, an earthquake in Morocco, you know, this wire of wildfires. I've, I've, there must be wildfires in Australia. I'm sorry, I'm not up to the latest. In, um, They're in, starting in to emerge now, and I'm sure yeah. as time goes on, we will see. I mean, it, it, it seems like you in the US at the moment, we can, our climate just continually vacillates between we're either drowning in floods or on fire. So, you know, it's, it's <laughs> kind of crazy. Yeah. I don't mean to laugh, but I have a daughter in California and for years and years, there were wildfires in California, drought, 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 drought. In the past couple of years, it just been drenched. So it's, and I, I'm not sure if it's solved in drought, but they've had so much, so it's caused mudslides, yeah. flooding, you know, everything is sort of turning on its head. So, yeah. um, you know, we can hope that it's a blip, you know, a historical blip, but I'm not that confident that it is just, you know, the, um, just, just a, you know, a um, function of, 
you know, the, the Earth's tilt on the axis or whatever. And, yeah. You know, I'm more suspicious that we've we've done a lot more than a lot of people think we have. Yeah, and and I guess we also need to sort of bear in mind too that when we look at globalization of organizations, we tend to outsource labor to areas where things are going to be cheapest and these areas seem to be impacted more predominantly by um you know natural disasters or i shouldn't say they're they're more impacted by natural disasters it's not like the frequency of them tends to be higher but when you don't have a, a certain level of affluence within a community then you don't have the ability to deal with those natural disasters on the same level and the impact can be more profound if you've got huge numbers of people packed into a building that collapses as opposed to spread out into housing it's it's a bigger impact i guess uh, yeah that's an excellent yeah so that brings us to legal and regulatory issues and no surprise here when it comes to legal and regulatory the first cab off the rank was robotics. So talk us through yes. a bit about the robotics issue. Okay, now we get into real, um, well, just another Black Mirror kind of society. And I, Black, Black Mirror is one of my favorite shows, by the way. And in almost some of the early episodes, see, we've moved so fast and they were so accurate. It almost seems quaint now that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, of course that happened. Because, yeah. wait a minute, Black Mirror predicted that. It's already, you know. But now we're almost past the time where, you know, for some of those episodes. But yeah, the big thing here with robotics, Elon Musk, um, his Neuralink received approval from the U.S. federal, uh, the FDA, to to um, be put brain chips, implant them in humans. That's a huge, huge development that that I'm glad you're aware of. But it, in a lot of areas, um, it's sort of gone unnoticed um this now we're talking about you know hybrid people humans this is this is beyond wearables this is you know you first you had you know um you had uh devices right that like iphones and you, you have wearables like i don't know google glass even though that didn't really last now you have you know becomables or whatever it is you know, implants yeah. where now all of a sudden you have an unfair advantage of um, being turbocharged with, um, you know, with uh, uh, computer chips, with, um, you know, advanced intelligence. And where can that go? Are we, you know, are we now on the cusp of um, Skynet with, um, you know, from the Terminator, <laughs> um, Robocop or whatever? Are we, have we now turned back, you know, and people don't know. I mean, I, it sounds like I'm being, um, uh, um, like so over the top, um, you know, hyperbolic, but really you, you talk to people and who, who know experts, uh, ethics experts and technologists, and they, they're, you know, we really don't know where it's going to go. And some people say, oh no, that's not going to happen where we kind of lose control or, um, there'll always be the human side that can overcome the, the robotic side or whatever. But the fact is, you know, it's unclear. Now I don't want to focus on the negative, you know, having brain chip implants in humans can do tremendous things could um improve quality of life um you know heighten intelligence maybe um extend life and and um um you know curtail uh you know illnesses um certainly you know make people um you know operate in one sense on a higher plane so, I mean, we're very early on this, but it almost kind of reminds me of when um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger character went back in Terminator 2 and looked for the guy who invented the chip and said, don't invent this chip, right? Because yeah. we can't turn back the clock. Um, I mean, the fact is we can't turn back the clock at anything. You know, we, um, since we, you know, we um, came up with nuclear weapons, um, you know, there's certainly no going back on that. And I would say nuclear weapons are probably are you know are um, the existential threat for the world for the past 80, 80 years or so and or ninety years and fortunately through various means maybe through a lot of luck um, you know we're you know we're we're we're, we're still here um, but you know my point just being like we come up with these things that we don't really understand. 
and that we can't control. And am I suggesting don't innovate? You know, not at all. It's just, you know, we, we sometimes we do things before understanding its full implications. As a matter of fact, most of the time we do, it's very rarely that we come up with new technology where they really understand what effect it's going to have on, on, um, the, on mankind, on, on living things on the planet. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I don't think my um, my views on the world are necessarily as, as altruistic or as kind-hearted as yours. I think we're going to see developments in this area where you see companies developing chips to go into the human brain to provide all sorts of things, but you'll see a replication of what we've seen in the social media space where... You know, you talk to, you, and we've all seen the documentaries where, you know, people who work in social media, you ask them, are your kids on social media? And they're like, oh, hell no. I would never let my children anywhere near social media. <laughs> and it, it'll be the same with these, you know, neural chips where it's like, you know, oh, it's the greatest thing ever. You should have this implanted. You can have immediate access to all the information on the internet and all, all the. Oh, so how many people in your family have got one? Are you kidding? I'd never stick yeah. one of those things in my head. You'd have to be insane. Yeah. Um, there is a, um, a, a famous, uh, he's famous, but I, f- I forget his name right now. He's spoken at ASIS a few times. He's a futurist technologist and he has this, um, uh, branch of, um, science equals like humology, I think, where it's combining like humans and, and robotics in the future. And, um, he was giving a presentation and he said, like, how many people would get a brain chip implant or uh, a brain chip implant and nobody raised their hand? And how many think it's likely, you know, it's like, oh, no, I'd never do it. Well, what if, you know, your, um, what if your kid, you know, was in school and all the other kids had it and he couldn't get, you know, he couldn't even get into college because he didn't have it. He couldn't get a job. How many, you know, who's going to say deprive their child of that? you know, of a better life. And all of a sudden your pants are going, well, maybe I would put a brain chip in. So, um, you know, that is a incredibly, um, you know, competition, keeping up with other folks, missing out incredibly powerful. And, and really if it comes to a point, if you don't get it, you're, you're, you're in, you're left behind. You're like the, um, you turn, you're the underbelly of society and people who are, you know, do the most menial tasks that don't require, you know, um, you know, analysis or discernment. Yep. So our next one on the list was employment law. Uh, Now, I guess that makes perfect sense from a legal and regulatory issue point of view, but why has this become something of a concern? Um, Well, this is, this is admittedly more American. You know, we had people from all over the world and this person, Eddie Sorrell's is an attorney, um, there's a lot of labor stuff, security stuff in, um, in the U S and, um, even though I, I think it's more of a global trend in the U S, um, with stricter employment laws, um, and, and state regulations, compliance, um, is forcing companies to do more on security than it has in the past. Um, it's a lot of people will tell you in security, there's three things that move the needle. Security that means force people to actually implement security, increase it. Um, one is an incident curse, so now all of a sudden, yeah, like you've got to respond, put in um, preventive measures in place after the fact, right? Um, you saw what happened after 9 11, for example. Um, regulation or, or uh, compliance, so um, you know, governments will say, hey, to operate this business, it's it's particularly susceptible to blah, blah, blah. So now you're required to have this kind of security, right? You know, it's like, so if you're, um, if you're a nuclear power plant, you know, you have to have this kind of manned security. If you're a hospital, you need to have privacy protections. Um, so regulation, otherwise people won't do it, right? I mean, only the most altruistic will do it or if they can benefit somehow and make money from it. And the third is if, you know, the, the board, wants it for some reason or other for a competitive advantage or somebody's pet project or someone powerful and influential wants it. So, um, but here, so it's, it's the, um, uh, states, um, and, and localities 
are um, are cracking down on um, uh, uh, or, or or strengthening laws for um, private security firms. So it's um, now where it was more loosey goosey before adhering to legal standards is becoming more essential for yeah you know, um you know to, to have transparent operations and and to survive as a business so i think we're seeing that um I, i'm not i can't say hey i have a global view of laws you know yeah but um it seems to be a trend um for the most part uh, confidence saying the u.s not so much for australia um you know brazil argentina United Kingdom, so to speak. Yeah. Um, unified access management. Uh, talk us through unified access management and, and how that's an opportunity emerging in the security technology space. Yeah. So traditionally, we've had the uh, division between cyber and physical. You have a physical credential. It might be a, an access card, a FOB. It could be, um, you know, a a, a code key it could be a biometric and so we walk through doors we um you know we we do physical things with with those credentials and then we get onto a computer and we hold different set of things you know we have um you know we have passwords and and uh, and authenticators and things like that and we're in all this information is multiple databases so wouldn't it be more efficient and more useful to unify, you know, access management. So not just access, physical access control doors, but access to networks, systems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can verify, um, you know, both physical and cyber in a single user. Um, and, you know, we're seeing integration, physical cyber integration, and in a broader sense, we're seeing convergence between physical and cyber. Um, you want to comb through databases like if you see that you know i am a um you know i come in at every time to the office at a certain hour um and that um you want to track my access control physical access control records and my cyber access control records now if you see there's you know i'm accessing a certain system um from the building at a time that I'm not usually in the building. Those are sorts of anomalies that can be detected. So it's not just to make it more cohesive and coherent, but also to, um, to find anomalies and, and, um, um, and other trends that could, um, you know, that can, that can make use um, more efficient to, yeah. to sort of create efficiencies and potentially save costs. Yeah, well, I hear uh, Elon Musk's Neuralink is going to have some uh, interesting opportunities in this space. We can just put chips in people's brain and yeah. uh, and deal with all of their access credentials that way, and tell when they're being dishonest and you know sharing corporate network information that they shouldn't be sharing, and all sorts of other things. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, quantum readiness. This is, I, I guess, in theory, something I'm kind of aware of, but I'm not really au fait with what we're talking about here. I'm assuming this refers to quantum computing and cryptography, but how do you see this as being a, a an opportunity emerging in the security technology space? Yeah, and, and don't feel bad. Nobody's really on, on this except um, people who deal specifically in this. You know, people, uh, cryptographers and, and people, you know, um, dealing with large software installations and integrations we're we're not anywhere really near a quantum computing present you know present um but we do have workable quantum basic quantum computers and when and i'm not going to try to explain you know briefly what a quantum computer is basically um traditional computers are ones and zeros you know bits you know um it's either one or a zero and with quantum it's not one it's the possibility of it being one or zero right so all of a sudden uh, just like you know with quantum physics quantum mechanics um you know two things can really be in the, in the same place at the same time 
and depending on how it's observed. So it gets into really heady stuff. What what people need to know from this is that NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, has is creating new craft cryptographic standards and has called for you know for for input on it. Um, when new when quantum computing comes to 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 uh, to life, you know when it's really instituted, all the old encryption and cryptography is going to be useless because it'll be crackable in an instant, instant, instant. And so every you know all the the um, those layers of security we have um, will be you know useless. And think of how deep it goes. Right, it's not just on your device your application on your on your network we're talking about um you know blockchain applications we're talking about cryptocurrency that these are things are built on um on encryption and if if they are not encrypted they're completely exposed so you have blockchain which you know is supposed to take over the world you know and, and has very good applications so if we use old cryptography, it would be um, easily breakable, hackable. So in systems that big companies are installing now, um, I've been talking to some of the large system integrators. And they say right now is a time where we're telling our customers that we, they have to start thinking about, um, you know, in any future iterations of software, to um, be able to swap out or be able to to uh, install much more rigorous um, cryptography that's quantum based, so you're not caught with all the jewels. You know, like all of a sudden you're, you know, if order will happen like this, day one to two, snap your fingers, quantum computing's there, and everything's exposed, and now your uh, your data's gone. Um, uh, you know, we, it's sort of like. Um, Remember uh, Y2K? Yeah. Y2K steroids. Because, you know, there was a lot of patching that was done, a lot of software swapping for Y2K, and luckily not much happened, right? But this is um, this is much more dire because there, I mean, there, there were obviously there was uh, a lot of consequence, but this is basically the, all the walls come down. You know, and, yeah. and the barbarians can can invade, right? At will, you know, and you're just um, you're you're completely exposed. So, really, this is about starting to prepare for a uh, a um, quantum future and start thinking about it and building it into your your planning. Yeah, well, I remember back in the uh, I think it was the early 2000s, one of the OGs or, or you know, old guard of original cryptography and computer passwords was a program known as PGP or Pretty Good Privacy. I remember and, that. Yep. yep. And, and their marketing at the time was, you know, use our software and it would take all of the computers in the world linked in parallel longer than the, the helium or the hydrogen left in the sun uh, in order to crack your password, <laughs> and these days I think you can you can get through PGP from back in the early two thousands with a brute force attack in a matter of minutes. Uh, yes. So you know it just goes to show how standards and and beliefs in ideals shift dramatically as technology evolves. I, I remember them saying like yeah forty bit like encryption or something or whatever it was like yeah it would take years and years to and now it's like you know uh, you know I think. My daughter could break that in like yeah. five minutes, you know, on her on her um, you know, her iPhone or whatever. Yeah, so using using tools um, freely available on the internet. <laughs> right, right, yeah. exactly. Um, so to to wind up this discussion, we're we're going to skip through crime and prevention because most uh, two of the points in here, or at least one of them, sort of very U.S. specific around the border crisis and you know fentanyl sure. abuse and human trafficking. Organized crime, I think we're sort of fairly across that as far as the the challenges that that presents. Um, let's just finish off by briefly touching on some of the professional issues, events, and trends that are emerging out of the research that you've done. Um, and starting with convergence, I mean, we've discussed a fair bit of this, but take us through convergence in a brief snapshot and how you see that presenting a, a trend or an opportunity. 
Sure. Before I get to that, I just want to close out with the um, the tech week. I just want to add zero trust has really yes. shot up into like a strategy for both cyber and physical security. Um, it's, you know, never trust is verified and people know what it is. I just want to lay that out there. We'll move right to convergence. Yeah. Um, I did convergence research for ASIS back, I think it was in 2019. That followed up on other um, convergence that, that folks had done earlier, 2012, 15, 16. ASIS did more research after um, after COVID, see what the effect COVID had on convergence. Um, and it's creeping that way. And when I mean convergence, I don't mean it's integration of physical and cyber systems, technical integration. I mean departments working together, security thought of as holistically, um, maybe in one department, but working closely um, uh, um, uh, in, in tandem or collaboratively. Um, so it's more of a, um, um, I wouldn't say philosophy, but more of a, a structural thing, right? Yeah. Not a technological thing. And my study showed that um, in 2019, I think physical and cyber convergence was something like 24%. And the latest data is something like 27%. But I've said this elsewhere. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. I mean, the data is good. The data all, and it's very consistent across the board. Everyone comes up with the same number. Um, but it doesn't pass the eye test. When I talk to people, I never get, you know, it's like maybe one out of 10, you know, uh, you know, um, two out of 15 or whatever have converged cyber and physical. Yeah, it's, I've never been able to match that to, you know, the numbers to reality. And it makes sense. You know, there's, um, you know, um, security is security, getting people to work together. Threats aren't just cyber, physical, personal, um, social, et cetera. They cross all those things. So why shouldn't our uh, defenses? Um, but it's different sk- things that hold it back, different skill sets, corporate culture, inertia, um, professional jealousies, things like that. I think we're slowly moving towards it. I mean, the, the numbers are ticking up. Um, there are some of the people, experts I talked to pointed out that um, there are cybersecurity protocols now that are being employed in access control and security systems. So the, the technical aspect, they're moving that way and sec- physical security for cyber systems and cyber security for physical systems are becoming more mature um, so again, that's technical and it's just when will companies, you know, you know, bite the bullet and will they bite them yeah. because it's pain to, to change an organizational structure. And there's a lot of other things, you know, when they, that, that come before security, when they, when companies decide to, you know, alter the structure, it's like, you know, sometimes security is an afterthought. So that's where convergence is. Yep. Now, the next one is an interesting one because it's something that I think a lot of the industry, as far as security is concerned, has been focused on trying to achieve for a long time. We have traditionally been a very reactive industry insofar as we detect events and we respond to events or events occur and we respond to events. But you've shown that proactive security is uh, is something that's becoming more and more of a trend or more and more of a focal point within the security market. And I, I have to laugh a little bit because the gentleman that you've spoken to about this, who is very well known in the industry, Jeff Slotnick, every time I hear uh-huh. that name, it makes me giggle. Because if you ever read Mad Magazine back when you were a child... There was always there was always a Jeff Slotnick character in Mad Magazine that was uh, <laughs> that was always up to all sorts of crazy stuff. So every time I see his name, I have to giggle. But uh, talk us through proactive security and how the various different things that we've spoken about throughout this podcast, like AI and machine learning and cyber intelligence, are all combining to enable proactive security. Yeah. So um, you know, as you said. Security used to be a matter of, um, of you know, after the fact, post facto um, um, response. And then it's like, hey, we're, you know, we're behind the eight ball. Um, we should be able to um, uh, 
predict things. You should be able to, to get ahead of the curve. And with so much, um, we've got artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, and so much data, predictive data being generated. Um, uh, and when I say predictive data, it's also from past incidents being able to um, suggest what's coming around the corner, AI interpret data. Um, and so we're, you know, we're pulling information from so many different systems, not just from security systems, for, from um, smart building sensors, prop tech, and, and all these things help us create a much more sophisticated um, uh, pattern of uh, uh, pattern recognition. Um, and, you know, you can pull from social media, um, publicly building records, um, and really get a much better sense of, you know, we, we're not at the point of we're in, um, you know, the movie, uh, you get the movie where people sit in the bathtub, you know, and oh, figure out what you report. I already report exactly, um, but we're getting pretty good um, pulling all that data together, and why that counts, why that matters is, you know, security is traditionally seen as a, a, a cost center. Um, they, you know, you mop up the spills, you know, you you rebuild the thing that's broken, you replace the the item that was stolen or whatever, and now to be a strategic partner. Um, you can use this data to perhaps predict, prevent, and interdict crime. And more than that, proactive security has a, a money-making or a business-generating aspect, too, because a lot of the stuff, as we talked before, can create efficiencies. Like that data can show that there's too much traffic coming in this store. There's too much energy being expended in that. Um, so it can create efficiencies. We can also create, um, you know, new business development revenue streams. Data showing that um, I have one client that used data on after after COVID, they had used data for opening and closings, um, you know, access uh, control swipes and things like that in a certain city <clears throat> to see how many people are coming back to work after COVID, and that helped the city. Um, let small businesses know who was coming back in downtown. So it's like all these places that might've been spas or dry cleaners or markets that were doing poorly um, because no one was in the streets anymore. It's like, oh, okay, now we're starting to see an uptick. Maybe it makes sense for these businesses now to reopen or change their hours or whatever. So yeah, that's on the city level. So things like that, um, <clears throat> at the corporate level, at the, at the facility level, or at a, uh, you know, larger, at a larger level, like a city or, or a state or what have you. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. Well, look, we're, we're going to have to land the plane cause we're coming to the end of our allotted time and you've been very, very generous with us, but you know, if we look at the rest of this list, you know, we've got things like leveraging data on there as well. We've got specialized standards, Michael, if people want to find this list or if they want to find you and more information about you and possibly chat, how do we go about doing that? Go to michaelgips.com. That's the easiest way. G-I-P, Michael G-I-P-S, and that's my website. And uh, you'll see what I do. You'll see, hopefully, um, when this comes up, well, definitely when this comes up, I will be putting a link to this podcast on my podcast page. So it'll show, you know, um, media that I've done, writings, um, partnerships that I have, initiatives I'm involved in. I try to always, um, uh, you know, prop up um, ex- or, or support um, excellent professionals in the field, up-and-coming um, security professionals, uh, uh, new entrants to the profession, uh, and new technologies that uh, I think are deserving of attention. So, yeah, if you want to get in touch with me and I'm learning. Uh, I I am a inveterate learner. Um, the only thing I know anything is the reason I know anything is from talking to people like you and and experts and um, you know amalgamating and, and pulling in information. Maybe I need one of those Neuralink uh, <laughs> chips. <laughs> yeah, please reach out to me because I I benefit from talking to people like you and and um, you know expert and wise and experienced professionals. 
Excellent. And this piece of research that you've conducted in 2023, moving into 2024, you mentioned for those people who haven't listened to the first podcast yet that you do a lot of work for ACES. Is this a piece of research that you intend to replicate year on year as we move forward or is it just a, an ad hoc thing? I've been doing it for a few years and I like compiling lists and I like, as I said, I like um, talking to people who know what they're talking about able to generate information that's useful for others. So I think it's going to be ongoing for the foreseeable future with, with help from my, um, you know, with uh, able colleagues. Fantastic. Well, again, Mike, you, Michael, thank you very much for your time. And we look forward to chatting to you again on the, uh, on the next opportunity. My pleasure. It's very invigorating and, and uh, thought-provoking conversation. Thanks again. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day. The only tool missing from your belt, Simpro. Total business software for the trades. When you choose Simpro, you get the digital power tools of the trades that make work, work. Founded by trades, for the trades. Simpro is your solution for scheduling, quoting, inventory tracking, and easy workflow management that grows with you. Join more than 200,000 users worldwide who trust Simpro to help them run and grow their business. We're here for you, so let's get to work.